This program is brought to you by the Hawaii Chapter of the Society for Conservation Biology, with assistance from KTUH. SCB Hawaii offers opportunities for direct conservation action through our Education and Outreach, Policy, and Science Communications Committees. To learn more about these opportunities and to join our chapter, please visit www.hiscb.org. Membership is free for students and $10 for professionals. You can also join the SCB Global Organization at www.conbio.org. That's C-O-N-B-I-O.org. Mahalo. Uh, no, no, no. I think, I think we're good here. Uh, go ahead and say okay. something. It'd be good to be able to talk normally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this looks really good. Uh, both okay. of our levels look pretty even, uh, and you're not maxing out on your end either. So, yeah, yeah I, I think, see, I think I we fixed the now. problem. Okay. Thank All right. You. Fantastic. All right. We are back for another episode of Conservation Talk Story. Uh, this is the podcast where we give conservationists and scientists an opportunity to tell their story and also talk about important issues related to Hawaiian conservation. I am your host, Max Bendis, our resident plant and soil expert uh, and guy with big beard. Today in the studio, we have a very special guest here to talk to us about coral reef ecosystems and their health and protection moving forward. We're joined by esteemed scientist, Mark Hickson. He is an endowed professor in the department of, or, see, there we go, I already flubbed it. He is an endowed professor in marine biology at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. Uh, he is also uh, a very well-respected science communicator. He's given several TED Talks. He's appeared on TV, uh, multiple radio appearances. Mark also happens to be a personal mentor of mine. He helped me out when I just first started on my science communicator journey. Uh, he's been a wealth of knowledge and support uh, throughout my professional career so far. And I'm really, really happy to have him on the show. Well, thank you so much, Max. That's a very sweet introduction. And it's always been a pleasure working with you and I'm glad to be here today. So before we get into all the nitty gritty and fun science stuff, I always like to start with the personal side of things. So Mark, I wanna ask first and foremost, what kind of scientist are you? And then out of all the different kinds of scientists that a person can be, why did you decide to be this type of a scientist? Well, that's a big loaded question, but I'll be as concise as I can, Max. Yeah. I'm a I will ocean... I will make you work for it, Mark. It sounds good. I'm an ocean scientist. I'm a marine biologist. I studied life in the ocean. And specifically, I study mostly coral reefs, which I've studied around the world. And on coral reefs, I study both the fishes and the corals themselves, the, the builders of the reef. That all got started when I was a child and was raised near the ocean and was sort of feral as a kid. I was always outside <laughs> and developed a um, sort of a natural attraction to nature and curiosity about nature. And then I was just lucky to have good mentors through my life some special courses that guided me toward what I do today. And I, I've never looked back. I just absolutely love being the kind of scientist I am. 
you know, you're not you're not just a scientist, though. You're also uh, a very well-respected science communicator. Um, you know, what sort of led you to focus on that aspect of, you know, life as a scientist? Because for me, it's it. I mean, I'm also a science communicator. I was very drawn to it. But I also see a lot of my colleagues uh, and other people in the science community kind of um, getting tunnel vision, you know, with with our research. We get so focused on doing our research and the importance of our own research that we don't really stop to think about communicating that to non-scientists. And even I know some scientists who aren't that great at communicating with other scientists and that causes its own set of problems. But, you know, what sort of uh, prompted you to start looking outside of our community and start talking with those people? Well, that was that there was a very clear event in my life that did that. I had, I was always fairly uh, shy, so I'm not naturally extroverted to step before an audience and speak. I'm an introvert too, Mark. It, <laughs> I know how you feel. I learned to do that as a professor because I found that I enjoyed teaching as well as doing research. So, so that sort of, I guess, pre-adapted me to be able to communicate some. But what's caused me to step out of the ivory tower and try to very much engage society was a singular event that occurred in 1997. That was at that time, the warmest year on record in the history of humanity. And was the first year that there was a global coral bleaching event where corals of the world suddenly blanched and turned stark white, which meant that they had lost their little symbionts that helped them live from the warm water and Many reefs died that year, that single tragic year. And one of the reefs that died was my favorite coral reef in the Bahamas where I was working. Over a course of days, that reef went from vibrant, full of life, amazing diversity to a stark white ghost town. It was really that and fast. Died, died before my very eyes over a matter of days. Yes, yeah, severe bleaching kills corals fairly rapidly. It takes probably a week for the corals to die, but you know, I was there for I was there for the summer, and I watched the whole thing. How long had you been working with that reef before just watching it die over the course of a few days? That must have been a really tough experience. Yeah, I'd studied that reef for about seven years, so it was it was very yeah, it was it was heartbreaking. Um, it's really weird to have tears flowing in your face mask underwater. But at that point, I realized I was out in the middle of nowhere in the Bahamas. I realized people need to know about this. People need to understand that even if they aren't seeing what's happening around the world, it will affect them. And that's, that's the moment I resolved to become a science communicator. And I was very lucky because within a year or so, a brand new program was started by the Ecological Society of America called the Aldo Leopold Leadership Program, which was all about training mid-career scientists to be science communicators. And I was applied and was so lucky to be in the very first cohort. And I've never looked back since then. Well, good. I mean, as somebody speaking, I guess I can't really say from the other side of things, but as a new scientist and science communicator coming up, I can certainly say that you and other scientists like you have had an impact uh, because we are seeing 
more science communication than I feel like we ever have before. Maybe it's just because I'm paying more attention to it than I had previously. Um, you mentioned earlier the ivory tower, uh, and this is this is a term that I think a lot of non-scientists might not be familiar with, but I think we as scientists, we kind of are because it's our ivory tower and there's this sort of perception. I think we've done a pretty decent job of breaking that down recently, uh, at least within scientists of, you know, we're in our ivory tower, we control all of our fancy science information and we feel superior or we are superior because of that. But, you know, the reality couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, and this, you know, this sort of dichotomy of scientists versus non-scientists, uh, information versus misinformation, uh, this has been more apparent than ever before, not just in, you know, American society, uh, but globally, you know, the global spread of misinformation regarding the coronavirus pandemic has been insane. Uh, and then when you compare that to perceptions about climate change, which are kind of like really, there's a really even split. It's something around like 40% of people in America uh, don't believe that climate change is caused by or impacted by humans, which feels like a ridiculously high number. Uh, but you got to remember, that's kind of the same number uh, of people who approved of our former president uh, when he was in office. So, you know, maybe there are some things aligning there. But, you know, for me as a science communicator and a scientist, uh, I see this spread of misinformation uh, and this sort of information warfare that we're engaging currently. And it's really it's really disheartening uh, for me. Uh, so I, I was hoping that you could share some of your thoughts on, you know, the, this current age of misinformation, um, how it makes you feel as a scientist and science communicator, but then also, you know, what you think the solution might be. And I, I'm pretty sure this is another quote or thing that I learned from you, but I think the solution is empathy. Uh, and I, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on, on that. Well, this is the issue of our time, Max. There's no question about that. I, I chose the word I chose the word ivory tower intentionally because I find it to be a, a disparaging characterization of academia and universities. And in fact, I was raised in that kind of atmosphere. Back when I was a graduate student in the 1970s, very, very few scientists reach out to the public. Scientists were all cloistered away in universities, doing their research, all with good intentions, publishing their results in scientific journals, and then assuming that was it. It was done. And of course, it wasn't done because it hadn't been brought to society as a whole. And early on, it was actually looked down upon for scientists to engage directly with the public in science communication. It was this very strange period of time. And I think you sort of characterize it right. It was like scientists back then were sort of snooty. You know, they thought they were better than others. My generation and generations since then are just regular human beings. And most of us have a curiosity about nature that we want to share. And when we see something going on in the world that's dangerous and scares us, we need to bring that to the people. The people may not want to hear it, and in many cases will, you know, reject the messenger because they don't like the message, but that's no reason to stop. So 
Yes, we live in very dangerous times. The, the denial of science is the greatest it's ever been, probably in the history of the world, and it's centered here in the United States. You can go to Europe, you can go to Asia, you can go to any other continent, and science is embraced, just like it's always been. Here, it's been so horribly politicized that we now have a phenomenon called willful ignorance. I don't want to listen to you scientists. I'm not even going to try to understand you scientists because you're in that other tribe, you know, the tribe of whatever disparaging thing I want to say about you. And so you're absolutely right. Empathy is the only way out of that. Somehow to have empathy for these poor souls who have been misled, literally misled, and embraced, embraced the, the demagogues of the world, the people who play on people's fears, people's biases, and people's prejudices, and bring out the shadow in people, where they start looking at others as almost not even human. It's, it's tragic. It is tragic, and it's it's hard to watch, and it's also hard to be a part of. You know, I'm I'm a young guy. I just turned 31 recently, and so I I have this feeling that it's up to me and my peers and colleagues uh, to you know fix the problems that we're currently facing in the world. But that's a very daunting task, uh, and it's not something that we're going to be able to fix. Uh, I, what I mean is it's not something we're going to be able to fix during a podcast like this, uh, but it is important to talk about and to recognize and be aware of these issues. Um, I'm sure we could probably talk about, you know, this particular issue and misinformation and kind of have our, our meta discussion about communication. Uh, but that's not the point of this episode. Uh, this episode is supposed to be about coral reef ecology. So I want to bring it back to what we're here to do. We're here to talk about coral reefs. Uh, and specifically, we're here to talk about the importance of herbivores in a coral reef ecosystem. So I've done a little bit of homework, you know, I've looked through some of the materials for today's class. And so I want to start, Mark, by asking you about the five different classes of coral reef herbivores, because it, it's not just oh, fish eat algae and seaweed, and that's the end of the story. It's much more complicated. There are a diverse number of species that are involved, and they have different roles with varying degrees of importance. So I was hoping we could get into that. Yeah, I'm happy to do that, Max. I, I think I first need to step back a little bit because you know many people aren't connected with coral reefs. We tend to be so here in Hawaii, but Still, many people, a, a coral reef is just this vague notion. It's this thing out there around the coast. And what's extremely important for everyone to know, especially here in Hawaii, is how amazingly valuable reefs are to our everyday lives and basically are irreplaceable in the goods and services that they provide for us. They're natural breakwaters that keep our beaches from further eroding into the ocean. They actually provide the sand for our beaches. They are sources of food. The native Hawaiian community has known this forever. And many people fish and enjoy fishing off our reefs. They're a source of good ways for surfing. 
All the best surf spots are made on, made on coral reefs. Tourism, recreation, spiritual connection. And what most people never think about is that we're increasingly finding new medicines from coral reef organisms, especially medicines that treat cancer. And, you know, and who hasn't been touched either directly or indirectly mm -hmm. by cancer? So here we have this treasure trove living right off our shores and we're losing it. We're losing it increasingly rapidly because of this ever warming ocean and more frequent coral bleaching events. So where do herbivores come in all this? What are herbivores? Herbivores are mostly fish that eat seaweeds. It's as simple as that. So think of them as sort of the cows of the reef. I like to think of them more as the lawnmowers of the reef. So what happens when a coral dies, a coral colony, let's say it bleaches from, from a warm heat wave in the ocean. You have a dead coral colony sitting there. It's going to go in one of two directions. If there's no herbivores there, seaweeds will grow on those dead surfaces. And once that happens, corals will never, ever grow there again because the seaweeds are much better competitors for space than the corals that carry diseases of corals, everything else. That's it. But if there's herbivores present, these special fish, which I'll then introduce, they keep those dead surfaces clean so that baby corals can then settle and grow and replace that dead coral colony with another living coral colony. Right now, Hawaii's coral reefs are sitting ducks, and this is the main message I want people to know, because most of our coral reefs, especially around Oahu, have depleted populations of herbivores. Too many people taking too many fish, and that has got to change if we want to have coral reefs for future generations. So who are these fish? Who are these herbivores, these five groups? Well, think of them... Think of it as you're taking care of your lawn. If you're taking care of your lawn, you want to have a perfect putting lawn, you have all these different tools you use. Some, you know, trim individual blades of grass, some do these broad sweeps, you know, different tools for different functions. It's exactly the same with the herbivores on the reefs. So you have things like the heavy lifters. These are the parrotfish or the uhu with their big fused teeth that make them look like they have a parrot's beak. They scrape those dead coral surfaces right down to nice, clean coral, dead coral, that is, coral rock. And that provides a place for the corals to, to grow or this stuff called Crestos coralline algae, which is a place where corals like to settle and grow. Then you have the browsers. These are things like the chubs or called nenue. The chubs eat the larger species of seaweed the big leafy species and take them way down to, to lower cropped, standing crops, if you will. Then you've got the grazers, things like the many surgeon fishes, such as manini, that then crop down the filaments and the turfs at these low levels and keep everything nice and low. And then there's a few other groups mixed in there as well, but those are the, those are the three main groups. And you, you really need all those different groups of herbivores 
to keep all the different types of seaweeds cropped down nice and low so corals can grow. And so few people understand this basic truth of our coral reefs. If there are no herbivores, then soon enough, there will be no corals. And people just need to make that connection. Something that, that really struck me with your explanation was in the, the value of diversity of these herbivores. I mean, so this is, this is a topic that, of course, we've talked about in other episodes of the podcast. Uh, it's kind of the whole point of conservationism is preserving biodiversity. Uh, and I think a lot of people maybe don't quite understand the importance of that biodiversity. Uh, clearly, we can see that importance in your explanation when you're talking about, you know, the different types of herbivores that are cleaning up the reef. You know, there are different types of seaweed that need to get eaten with different growth forms. And so there are different herbivores that fill those roles. But coral reefs in general are also just a, a source of diversity, a home for diversity. They're built on diversity. And so uh, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit more broadly about the importance of biodiversity in coral reef systems, but also the importance of this biodiversity for, you know, marine systems outside of just the coral reef or impacts that healthy coral reefs have um, beyond their boundaries. You know, why, why is diversity kind of the, the most important aspect or one of the most important aspects of ecosystem health? Biodiversity, the variety of life forms, the variety of species, the variety of different types of genes within species, the variety of ecosystems, all those are extremely important, especially during a time of great change, which is where we are right now. The world is changing so rapidly and is going to start changing more and more rapidly through time that it's the biodiversity that's going to save us. Some species are going to be better adapted for the future than other species. So what you want to have with biodiversity is redundancy is one thing. You want to have more than one species that's fulfilling a particular ecological role or providing a particular good or service for humanity. Because if you lose that one and it's the only one, you're out of luck. But if you have multiple species, that are doing similar things ecologically, and you lose a few because of human actions, but you're gonna still have some other species there to fill that role. So redundancy is one thing. Then the other, as we've already talked about, is this idea of what's called complementarity, which is just a fancy way of saying different species have different specific roles. And it's the combination of all those different roles that create the synergy or the, the ultimate effect that we want. So in the case of coral reefs, we need a broad variety of herbivores to make sure the corals persist. So biodiversity is essential for a concept called resilience. That is the ability of our ecosystems to withstand all these onslaughts that are coming to them from human activities. You've mentioned a couple of times now uh, coral bleaching. Um, I know that there are other threats to coral reef health, but we hear a lot about coral bleaching in the news. Um, can you quickly just give us a, an overview of the, the coral bleaching 
process and uh, what the re- recovery process is like if if corals are even able to recover from certain types of bleaching events. And do you want a review of the other threats to reefs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get into that. Uh, but we've talked a lot about oh, okay. bleaching. So I figure we'll start with bleaching and then we'll we'll transition to everything else because I unfortunately, I'm sure there's a lot. Yeah, no problem at all. Coral bleaching takes place when the water becomes too warm for the corals to live as they normally live. The corals become stressed. That's true with all organisms. If the temperature gets too high, it becomes physiologically stressful, just like humans. What happens in corals is that they have single-celled plant-like organisms living inside of them in a what's called a mutualism, where these little single-celled plants feed the coral because they photosynthesize like other plants, and the corals in return actually feed those single cells with their waste products, which are like fertilizers to them, like manure. And so they live in harmony when the temperature is right and the coral is able to grow and survive. The water gets too warm and that symbiosis, that mutualism breaks down and the corals have no choice but to expel those single-celled plants. And it's the single-celled plants that give the corals their color. So once those single cells are exuded into the environment, all that's left is the transparent coral animal, which is called a polyp, like a little sea anemone, and its underlying white limestone skeleton. And that's why we call it bleaching. It's not chemical bleaching. It's just the corals lose their color. Now, the corals can grow back if the water gets cool enough, quickly enough. And we've been lucky in Hawaii so far where most of the time that's happened. We'll see the corals bleach and then they recover. But as the ocean continues to warm, a threshold will be crossed where the corals will then die. And that is already starting to happen in parts of Hawaii. The last great bleaching event in 2016, we lost a lot of corals on the Kohala Kona coast of the Big Island on parts of Maui. The prediction is by climate scientists that by the year 2040, Hawaii's corals will bleach every single year. And if if we don't have a lot of herbivores present at that time, it will be game over for our reefs. Because the seaweed will just take over and it'll it'll be gone by then. It is not, that's not far away, folks. Not far away. So, The state government knows this, and the Division of Aquatic Resources is now putting together fishing rules for herbivores that have never been enforced. And they're facing very strong opposition from some members of the fishing community who want to be able to fish any fish they want, whenever they want, wherever they want, with whatever gear they want. And that has got to stop. And so the public the legislators, everyone needs to know the importance of these animals to the survival of our reefs. Aside from uh, fishing and pressure from humans, um, what, well, I guess not necessarily aside from pressure from humans, but aside from fishing, what are the other threats to coral health that uh, Hawaii is currently facing? 
So the fishing is, again, the fishing isn't a threat to the reef itself, and fishing is okay in and of itself. It's just when too many of those herbivores are taken from a reef, that's when it's, the reef loses its resilience to coral bleaching. But besides that, our reefs have been historically just abused by activities on land because all things are connected. Mm -hmm. We've had poor coastal development practices where a lot of mud and silt is washed onto the reefs. That smothers the corals, literally kills them. We've been not very good with managing our sewage, especially with cesspools, holes in the ground where sewage goes. And with our porous lava ground and rock, that sewage filters out onto the reef. Sewage is fertilizers for seaweeds. So we have both the silt smothering the corals and then the seaweeds being fed by all these wastes that, that were being produced. In addition to the sewage, there's runoff from fertilizers. Poor agricultural practices where excess fertilizers are used on golf courses or for agriculture, and they flow into the ocean. What do they fertilize? The seaweeds, the plants of the sea. So many activities we've been doing on land over the decades, completely independent of fishing, have been killing our reefs for some time. But now we've got global warming, ocean warming, and it's a thing called ocean acidification worsening. We've got to get those herbivores back or it's going to be game over. So this, this is a, a difficult question uh, to answer, but I think it's worth talking about. You know, we've, we've laid out some of the, the problems that are facing coral reefs currently, but what solutions do we have available to solve these problems? Uh, and I know that it's, you know, a combination of many different solutions coming from many different places. You know, there's always the aspect of personal responsibility, but oftentimes I feel like personal responsibility is over-focused on. And the reality is that we need uh, accountability much higher up the chain, uh, you know, accountability from the legislature, uh, accountability from large corporations and industries like the tourism industry and the agricultural industry. Um, but that, that doesn't mean that individuals like us, uh, when we are operating as individuals, uh, can't still have impacts and do, you know, uh, things that are valuable for the preservation of not just coral reef ecosystems, but terrestrial ecosystems in Hawaii as well. Um, so I, I'm hoping that you can provide some insight um, because you've got a lot more experience in the industry than I do. Uh, you've got a lot more experience, I'm sure, dealing with legislators and dealing with, you know, large industries than I do. So where where do you see solutions to these problems? Um, you know, both for what do these large industries and the legislature need to do to help alleviate these issues, but also what can individuals do, you know, if we're willing to do things? Excellent questions all. So the, the actual solutions for our coral reefs are twofold at a local level. So I'm not going to address the global issue right now that's being discussed in Glasgow with the Council of Participants with the global climate um, policy and treaties and those kinds of things, because those will continue independent of what we're doing here in Hawaii. 
the ultimate solutions here in Hawaii for our reefs, the best we can do here in Hawaii for our reefs are two things. One is we've got to stop having the silt and the mud and the sewage and the fertilizers flowing into the ocean. That is better land use practices. And number two, we need to replenish our herbivore populations on the reefs as we've already discussed. So that's what needs to happen. So how to make that happen? In my experience around the world is it always takes a combination of bottom-up engagement by all citizens or as many citizens as possible and top-down inspired courageous leadership by the politicians and the people who own and run the companies. It's got to be both. It's got to be both. And when one is out of whack and not operating, the other side needs to push harder. And in Hawaii, I've seen it both ways. I've seen at the top levels, people understanding what the threats are to our reefs and people, the average citizen, just not thinking about it or caring and a lot of fishermen just taking all the fish they can. I've also seen the opposite. I've seen people who dearly love our oceans, dearly love our coral reefs and as engaged as they can possibly be. And some of the politicians and business leaders just don't care because they care just about the short-term thinking of what do the tourists want. And what people need to realize one truth above all others is that all things are connected. If we want to have, for example, thriving tourism in Waikiki, one of the things we need are beaches. Where do beaches come from? In Hawaii, they mostly come from parrotfish pooping sand. Parrotfish scraping those dead coral surfaces grinding it up in their body and pooping sand. A single large parrotfish can produce upwards of 800 pounds of sand a year. And this is at a time when our beaches are starting to erode away because of sea level rise. All things are connected. The legislators need to know that, the business leaders need to know that, the average person needs to know that. So that behooves us as scientists to do a much better job educating those who will listen at all levels. And for the herbivore issue right now, that's all I'm working on. That's what I'm focusing my efforts on above all else. I've organized a group of award-winning media experts, and we're working on developing some public service announcements that we hope will be aired on radio and TV about these issues with fantastic spokespeople who are well-respected around the island and direct them to a web page where they can learn more. And we hope it'll work. Uh, we're seeking funding and um, but we're all committed and we're all doing this, having day jobs on the side. Yeah. You know, I really, I can't agree more with that sentiment about how everything is connected. Uh, you know, for me growing up on the mainland, uh, that was really easy to overlook uh, just because of the scale of a lot of ecosystems and uh, natural processes on the mainland. You know, when we think about the Mississippi River, it crosses, what, four or five different states. So it's really hard to 
um, visualize and experience, you know, impacts so far upriver for somebody living down, uh, down south by the Gulf. But here in Hawaii, uh, I've been living here for only four years now. But when I first showed up, it just was hit over the head constantly with, you know, uh, what starts in the mountains ends in the ocean. And you just can't escape it because everything is so shrunk here. Uh, I think I think it's a really excellent point that we've talked about on some other episodes, but I think it's worth restating over and over again. You know, every ecosystem in Hawaii is connected. Uh, it's just a, a function of the geography that we're working with here. And so what what's happening on the land impacts the sea and like with the parrotfish creating the beaches what happens in the sea affects the land too so it's you know like you said it's everybody's responsibility it's from the bottom up and from the top down um and i i am hopeful i do think that we can solve these problems it's just a matter of doing the work uh, and unfortunately I I'm seeing, maybe it's just cause I'm biased. I'm seeing a lot of people on the bottom asking for work to happen and some inaction from people at the top. And hopefully that changes, uh, especially as, you know, people like me get older and start taking those positions at the top. Hopefully we don't become jaded and we start seeing some change. Although, like you said, we've got you know, about 19 years or so until we're seeing these consistent, large-scale bleaching effects in Hawaii, at least. And that's not a ton of time uh, to get stuff done. But we've we've talked a bit of doom and gloom uh, in this most recent segment. Uh, and I always like to bring things back to a more positive note. So um, initially, what good things are happening for coral reefs in Hawaii right now. Hopefully there are some. Yes, well, there are some. And in fact, we have to always end with a positive thought about the future, because otherwise we just fall into despair, depression, denial, lack of action, and seal our own fate. So I'm inspired by a variety of things. I've had the I have the fortunate experience of living here 40 years before moving back here. So I have two time frames over four decades, and there were two positive changes that took place in general in Hawaii that I want to relay. They're not directly related to reefs, but they're just they gave me hope. When I lived here 40 years ago, there was litter everywhere on this island. People threw McDonald's wrappers out the window, you know, whatever fast food thing you could imagine. And it was everywhere on this island. And I came back and it was mostly gone. And that's because I've read that enough children in the United States finally shamed their parents into stop littering. And it worked. Closer to griefs, when I lived here 40 years ago, one never, ever saw a sea turtle diving here, the Honu. The Honu are back. They're recovering. They're doing well because we stopped eating them and their eggs. And they actually also herbivores on reefs. So that fits right into the entire pattern. So that's good news. The other good news is 
having been a professor for going on 40 years now, I've noticed that each successive generation of students has become more and more activist minded and idealistic about wanting to make the world a better place. So more and more students are choosing actively to go into professions that will help make the world a better place, whether it's conservation or something else. And I'm inspired by them. And at the same time, those of us who are older have got to help them because they're not going to be in power for another 20 years or so. And that's about all the time we have left. So there is reason for hope. People need to band together, foster each other's hope, help each other when they're feeling stressed and depressed, and take to the streets, do what needs to be done to get people who don't want change to actually change. It's a very important time now for our reefs, for people to support the Division of Aquatic Resources about conserving coral reef herbivores, for people to call out those who they see overfishing, for people to take that personal responsibility, that kuleana, to make sure everyone around them is doing what needs to be done properly. And it's, it's not easy, you know, especially for those of us who are relatively introverted, but it's absolutely necessary. Well, I think that's a very uplifting message to sort of help wrap things up. It definitely makes me feel a little better knowing that there are, are so many other like-minded people like me uh, currently in your classes and in the classes of professors like you who are, are trying to, you know, make the world a better place in our own eyes, not just for ourselves, but so that everybody can benefit. Um, so this is this, this is sort of the... Uh, <laughs> let's let's just put in another gap for editing to make this process that much easier for me on the back end. Who knows? Okay, no worries. <laughs> but we're now at the end of the show. So this, Mark, would okay. be your last opportunity to plug uh, your research or your, your current um, science communication initiative. Yeah, for sure. So if there are those watching or listening, I'm going to start over. <laughs> <laughs> To those listening who want to know what they can do tangibly now to help coral reefs, there's a whole variety of things. Number one, they can go to the Division of Aquatic Resources herbivore webpage and read up on these issues and support DAR and what they're doing. They can contact their state legislators and tell them that this is an important issue. These are things you can do just sitting at a computer. We can also join organizations that are fighting to save our coral reefs. And there's a whole variety of them in Hawaii. There's organizations that are cleaning our beaches of plastics, which will choke sea life. There are people who want to clean the beaches of any other kind of pollutants. Go online and do some searching and help these organizations. Be watching for public service announcements from an organization called Fish Pono, Save Our Reefs. This is the group I'm working with to try to educate people about what we've been covering during this podcast. 
ultimately you can go online and look up how can I help coral reefs? And there's a number of organizations that have sort of checklists of you know 10 things you can do. Everything from using the right kind of sunscreens, which don't chemically attack corals, to making sure you're not adding to the pollution to reefs and a whole variety of other things. There's lots of things each of us can do that don't take that much time and effort. So please look into this and please act, not only for our present generations, but especially for the Keiki and future generations. Mahalo. There you go. That was an excellent plug, Mark. Great job. Uh, well, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on the show and talking to you. It's always a pleasure. Uh, luckily, we had you know a pretty good and important topic to talk about today, but uh, I don't know if other people would be interested in listening, but I think me and you could have a good conversation about just about any topic. Um, uh, see, this this is why this is why we don't do live recordings <laughs> for this exact reason, because <laughs> things I That's try trail off good. and I lose focus uh, and we lose the thread. But Mark, I want to I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. It's been my pleasure, Max. I'm so grateful for you and people like you who are making a difference. Everything we do that's toward a positive future makes a difference. So never anyone out there, never believe that your small actions don't count. They do count. Thank you so much, Max. Oh, uh, you're welcome. And Mark. aloha to everyone. Yeah, I, I really appreciate hearing that from you. Uh, and a, a big thank you to our listeners. If you stuck with us this long, boy, do we appreciate it here at the end of this uh, nearly 50-minute episode. Uh, I mentioned to Mark trying to keep stuff short and concise, but eh, that's not how this podcast really works. Uh, but again, thanks so much for listening. Uh, and if you have been inspired to get involved in your local community, uh, this is my opportunity to plug the Society for Conservation Biology you can check us out, uh, the local chapter at www.hiscb.org. We are a volunteer organization uh, currently accepting members. It's free for students. It's only $10 for professionals. Uh, and we engage in conservation here in Hawaii uh, and collaborate with other conservation groups like Surfrider, like the Sierra Club who are engaged in active beach cleanups uh, and stuff like that. So if you want to get involved, do check out our website. Check out the websites of those other organizations as well, because you really can't go wrong. There's a lot of volunteer organizations in Hawaii who are doing stuff. And no matter who you choose to work with, so long as you're out there doing something, then you're making a difference and contributing. So thanks so much for listening and for caring about the conservation of species in Hawaii. Mahalo. Mahalo and aloha, everyone.